Last November in Kiev, I met Oliver, who had one of the most interesting and unusual jobs I've previously encountered, mine clearance. At the time, Oliver was working in Kramatorsk, resting in Kiev, while his fiancée Annabelle was visiting him and seeing Ukraine for the first time. I only had a very short uh, chance to talk to them, but then in late April, I saw that Oliver was actually back in Kiev again. This time, however, working to set up demining operations in the recently liberated areas around the city with the Halo Trust, the biggest non-profit humanitarian demining organization in the world. And that got me thinking, wow, I don't know anything about demining. How does that even work? Hi guys, it's Agata here, and today I am joined by my co-host Kat. Hello. And as you might have guessed, we are going to talk about demining. Which isn't a new issue. I mean, even before the start of the full-scale invasion, Ukraine already has years worth of scattered, unexploded ordnance and landmines. And it was actually ranked fifth in the world for civilian casualties as a result of landmines. Yeah, the area of contamination was huge. And now just think about the scale that we are seeing with the the war today. Um, We are seeing so many more articles uh, telling us that it's going to take decades for us to demine everything. I think that, you know, funding and help to Ukraine after a victory is going to increase significantly. But even still, I think the best case scenario is it'll take us five years. Yeah. And as you said, there is an overwhelming amount of external funding because the costs themselves are huge. By some estimates, uh, demining one square meter can cost up to three to four dollars. So, for example, if we say that we have around 300 square kilometers that are currently contaminated uh, with explosives, um, it will take up to 900 billion to demine all of that. And this is just land calculations. We have, we're not even counting the sea. I actually haven't really found much information about, you know, uh, demining of our, like, of, of the Black Sea around Odessa. And I wonder, I think that's going to be a lot harder and that's going to be even a lot more costly. Yeah. I mean, I've seen a few things in relation specifically to the grain crisis, which we'll talk about next yeah. time. But, you know, when they're talking about the negotiations of getting grain out of Ukraine, Russia's demanding that Ukraine demine. Odessa in order to, you know, clear up the passageways. And it's much easier said than done, I suppose. That's yes, true. Um, so, okay. So then how does this process actually work? We won't talk about by sea. We won't tackle that today, but like on the ground. So there's two types, right? Military and humanitarian. Exactly. So uh, military demining is done for the purpose of military action. So if troops or ships are advancing um, and they need their enemy lines cleared. And this is basically a way to create a very quick, clear path through a minefield. And a lot of the times, you know, this isn't dealing with the whole area. So it's just like a, a small chunk of land and the rest of it is is left, um, you know, still still mined. But today we're going to talk more about humanitarian demining, which is done post factum to basically clean up an area after there is no more active fighting. And so this is the part that's hard, right? And requires a lot more time and accuracy. Yeah, exactly. And this is actually why there's no region in, you know, that's been uh, mined in Ukraine that is completely demined. Everywhere there's still mines, people are working and they can't even give us a full estimate of how much time it's going to take to demine, for example, even the Kiev region. I also think the reason that it's so difficult to get these kind of estimates and to really understand the extent to which 
you know, to what demining actually means is because I think when we think of demining, we think of, I mean, at least for me, I think of the Minesweeper game. I think <laughs> of like land with, you know, mines in it, except it's actually, it's not really just that. Yeah. Like when we saw in Bucha, when it was liberated, there was photos of Russian booby-trapped cabinets, jars and drawers. And so mining doesn't even necessarily just mean in the ground. You can find, you can probably find mines in occupied territories that are in people's basements in, you know, random, um, I don't know what it's called in English, but you know, the, the little sheds we have and in, in yeah, the, notch, yeah. the sheds, like things like that. Yeah. And so it's probably, you know, it's going to be a complicated process. Yeah, exactly. And actually mentioning um, booby trapping of homes is interesting because there has been some talk of new types of mines um, showing up during the war, which haven't been used in other places before. But before we talk about that, just for context, there are two types of mines. Um, there's two categories, let's say. There's anti-vehicle mines, which are usually used against military vehicles. And then there are anti-personnel mines, which um, are basically used against people. And these uh, are quite dangerous because uh, they can explode as little as two kilograms of pressure is applied or basically when a person steps on them. So as I said, both are dangerous, but uh, anti-personnel mines do pose a higher risk. Um, and actually, many international treaties prohibit their use. But of course, Russia hasn't signed any of these treaties, which, you know, is so shocking. Right. So what makes these anti-personnel mines, um, like, why are they banned? Well, it, the problem is that they don't always work properly. And then also years later, someone might just come across a random mine in their neighborhood. And that obviously doesn't end really well. So they're quite dangerous because the, the consequences of them are much uh, larger in the long run. But in right. the case of Russia, um, actually anti-personnel mines, well, in the case of the war, uh, anti-personnel mines pose more threats than just that. In, in what way? So basically, um, again, the, the now getting to the topic of, I guess, new types of mines. And, okay. and when it comes to anti-personnel mines, this is the big problem that there have been a lot of like kind of modifications that have been done to some of these mines that make them very, very dangerous. So for example, um, new anti-personnel mines that are popping up uh, can even recognize steps and explode near a person without them stepping on it. Which is crazy to think about the yeah. advances in these kinds of technologies. There was a new device discovered a few months ago, I think, by Ukrainian bomb technicians. It was near Kharkiv and it was called the POM-3. And so, like you said, usually the traditional landmines explode when someone physically steps on them or trips over the tripwire. But the POM3 sensor picked up the approaching footsteps and actually could even distinguish between human and animal footsteps. Wow. Like that's how sensitive the sensors were. And the mine reportedly had the self-destructing device that destroys the mine after a certain amount of time, even if it isn't activated by you know, the activation sensors. So you can set it for certain hours or days after the deployment. That's actually very terrifying. And I guess that probably some of these are ending up in people's backyards. Yeah, which... <laughs> definitely. And the crazy thing about that is, you know, Russian soldiers and Russian troops don't even need to be there in the yeah. territory anymore. They can leave their mind. They can set it to explode in two weeks and they can just leave. And then guess what? You know, Ukrainians come back 
um, or Ukrainian civilians are hanging out at home and the mine just goes off because it was set to go off. Thing is about that as well. Uh, it's very scary because a lot of these mines they're placed in there. I, I don't know if I guess in some cases it's, it's deliberate. In some cases, it's also situational, but they end up in places where it's like parts of the, I don't know, a person's backyard where children play, for example, you know, and then you mm -hmm. ask, ask the question like, okay, why, why is there a casualty? Because it is, it's like the places where you will find this bomb. It's usually this, this mine is usually actually where you'll have kids, you'll have uh, families hanging out. So it's not just, okay, it's in someone's shed. They, from what I've been seeing is that sometimes they're in places which people occupy um, for like long chunks of time, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I also, speaking of illegal weapons being used by Russia, I mean, we all know by now that they've been using cluster munitions and cluster bombs, which are illegal under an international treaty. Yeah. Um, and basically, for context, for those of us that, for those of you listening that don't study weaponry <laughs> and defense, um, the cluster munitions are warhead missile parts that are similar to cans or car oil filters, I guess, and they have a self-destructing mechanism. So you don't know when this item may explode, basically. Yeah. And I think that also with these types of mines, they are new and they obviously require a lot more familiarization and new approaches um, when it comes to demining. Anyways, other, either way, anti-personnel mines, they do pose a huge threat to civilians. Oh, and actually, remember when I said that anti-vehicle mines are less dangerous than anti-personnel mines? Well, that's not actually true. Okay, <laughs> because, Yeah, um, I mean, who's surprised? Let's be honest. Yeah. But um, actually, it is becoming a pretty big threat to farmers that are plowing our fields mm -hmm. because um, a lot of them are scattered there. And I think it's like 10% of Ukraine's farmland that is contaminated by explosives, which are yet to be cleared. So there's obviously been a lot of cases of tractors blowing up, people getting injured and also dying because of this. There are a lot of long-term implications of this kind of contamination and not only what we've talked about just now, but when you mentioned the soil and the fields as well, I was reading recently, uh, I did a report on bomb turbation, which is a play on the word bioturbation, which means a natural stirring up of soil. So this just occurs naturally when earthworms and other animals kind of mix up the soil. But there's this word called bomb turbation, which is what happens when war causes of war stir up soil. So basically mines blowing up and unnaturally stir up the soil. So heavy bombing, mines, artillery, trench digging, all of these things that leave really long-term impacts on the land. And I was reading that this bomb turbation that can be caused by mines basically damages the natural levels and the top soil of the land. It can and this mixing up can really dramatically change the soil profile and remove critical sediments and basically really dramatically change the landscape's morphology. These are all agricultural terms, but the basic idea is that, you know, the land and the soil is organized in a certain way. And when that messes it up, it can damage the way that crops grow and can really affect the yield. And I was reading That's about crazy. This. Yeah. And I was reading about this um, because there have been some studies done 
in other battlefields, so France and Vietnam, that people were studying the effects of the mines on the soil. And they were saying that there was really long-term impact even today from Vietnam and from World War II in France. What kind of impact? Well, they were, it basically affected um, soil development and also surface runoff. And so it's hard to really say exactly what the impact is. It's just that the things on the land don't grow the same. Like Mm -hmm. I'm trying to explain it without getting too technical agriculturally, but basically the idea is that when the soil is remixed like this by mines, you know, you can't, you're not growing the same. It's not going to yield the same. The runoff is different. The vitamins and the soil are different. So that's basically a mini tangent, but yes, um, there are going to be long-term implications and beyond just, you know, the civilian harm it causes. So I know that right now they're prioritizing demining the civilian populations and the critical infrastructure, but we're going to have to think about the agricultural impact as well, especially with harvest season beginning in early September. Yeah, that's true. Plus, just in general, farmers are going to face so much risk going forward, you know, because obviously these mines are not going to be cleared by September. Like, yeah. And the worst part is about this is such a game of luck because one farmer's land might be mined, but his neighbors might not be. So are you basically, if you're that farmer whose land is mined, are you supposed to sit there and wait for your area to be demined, lose your income, lose your crop for that year while your, you know, your neighbor can plow his land, conduct his business? Or do you go out and do potentially risk your life and, you know, at best maybe losing your equipment if you hit a mine, but, you know, harvest your crop. And so it's, it's kind of a, a it's becoming a big problem where uh, people are just going out and, you know, they're, they're going and plowing their land. And yeah. And that's, that's awful. And as we all know by now, agriculture obviously is a critical industry in Ukraine. And so I think that the risks that, the mining is posing to agriculture are like we're talking about, you know, very multifaceted. So there's not only just the individual risk of the actual farmer and the losses that he's going to take, but also the, as an industry and long-term for years to come. And so, yeah. Um, I also saw that in Kiev, the state emergency service reported cases where people under the guise of pyrotechnic specialists were going around and offering an inspection of apartments for explosive objects and providing basically these black market demining <laughs> services for money, which is, can we just say like, so Ukraine, because where <laughs> so else are true. people going to say, you know, you know, someone's uncle is definitely being like, I can demine this place for you. Like just, you know. <laughs> yeah. But it's actually a really big problem because, you know, even if, for example, they do demine it. They're probably are doing this incorrectly. Like who knows? I've, from what I've heard uh, from a few people uh, who kind of work in the field, they were saying that sometimes, uh, you know, even if 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 they, as I said, they demine it, it, they might have done it incorrectly. It might go off again at some well, point. Obviously, it's, they don't know what they're doing. So, like, I'm trying to be nice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's a, it's a problem, and so they've been kind of reporting some individual cases. So, but I guess the big Again, the big the reason why this is so difficult is because, as we obviously know, there is absolutely no cooperation from Russia. Um, mm-hmm. of what I've heard and what I've seen from international law is that uh, basically when a state deoccupies an area, they basically have to hand over you know their plans and they have to um, kind of show where 
their minds were for safe disarmament. Let's be honest, there's two reasons Russia doesn't do that. One, because they don't believe in international law. Two, because they don't have a plan. <laughs> like, That's if we true. ask them to give them their blueprints their plans, <laughs> like they're improvising at this point. So. Yeah, that's true. But it is a really big problem because it really feels like in the midst of this all, like we're playing by the rules, like we're doing things yeah. as we should be. You know, we signed some treaties, but so did Russia. But for example, um, there's, uh, we signed, we basically ratified the Mine Ban Treaty, which is also known as the Ottawa Treaty, which basically prohibits us from using anti-personal mines, and Russia did not. So right now, um, you know, we're playing by the rules and we're saying that, hey, okay, like we're not going to use them, but Russia's using it on our territory, you know? And they're also using it, even though they are, for example, um, restricted and they are like in a certain way supposed to adhere to international law. Uh, that, you know, for example, not using these um, mines in civilian areas and not targeting deliberately civilians, which they are, obviously, um, they're still doing that. So why is it that we're playing by the rules and we're also kind of seeing the the like the consequences of this and Russia is doing whatever they want and they get away with this? And this is something that has been brought up by I've seen this discussion um, on amongst a few experts and they're ta- they're saying that, hey, is that is that fair? I mean, I saw that. There was a policy professor at James Madison who uh, said something about how the way that Russia is using landmines is kind of legitimizing the use of landmines for other yeah. conflicts, particularly if other developed militaries start looking at it and seeing that it might actually be an effective strategy. And then, you know, what does that mean for the future of the use of mining in conflict? And, you know, is it setting a new precedent? All of this is, of course, incredibly interesting, but to get a better understanding of the situation that we are seeing in Ukraine today, I, I got in contact with Oliver and, you know, who I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, and he actually put us in contact with Mike Newton, uh, who is the head of the Ukraine region at the Halo Trust. And Mike and his team are currently on the ground in Ukraine. So he is going to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what they're, what they're, what they've been dealing with in regards to the situation. Hi, Mike. It is great to have you on here with us today. And kind of to start off, can you talk a little bit about your experience um, and what has the Halo Trust been doing in terms of demining in Ukraine? Sure. No, very nice to meet you. Um, Halo's been in Ukraine um, since early, 20, since early 2016, um, working in you know, Ukrainian government-controlled areas, um, in the areas of Donetsk and, and Luhansk. Um, it's funny how we, there's a lot of narrative, obviously, since the 24th February about how, you know, the, the war started and the, and the Russian invasion. And it's often very, I think it's, it's easy to forget sometimes that this war has actually been going on for about eight years. Um, it hasn't, hasn't just, hasn't just begun, uh, has just happened out of nowhere. Um, and so we started in 2016, um, we were out of a base in, in Kramatorsk. Um, we had a base down in Mariupol and up in Shiroki as well in those areas. Um, you know, we know, you know all too well that the fate of Mariupol now and also places like Shiroki and, and Kramatorsk increasingly under fire. But we, before the 24th of February at least, um, had about 430 staff, um, Ukrainian staff, um, working in, in different 
different areas of mine action, um, looking at risk education, um, telling people about the inherent risks of, of, of unexploded ordnance and landmines. We, um, were working, uh, to map these, these areas, the, the, these areas that were contaminated by landmines and, and unexploded ordnance. Um, and of course we were doing, um, the clearance of those, of those areas as well. Um, and we were working with, um, with the Ukrainian government, with the, the state emergency services, with the Ministry of Defense, um, developing their capacity, um, to, to engage in, in these activities as well, working alongside them. At the time of the, we say the escalation of the conflict, shall we say, on the 24th of February, um, out in Donbass, we, we knew there was about 20 years worth of, of clearance remaining in, in that one area alone. So, you can imagine that the scale of this of this problem now. Um, but the ultimately the the change in the security situation from the 24th of February have meant that it was no longer safe for us to to work there. So as a result of the of the fighting, um, you know, the, the problem of that the, the mine contamination of the explode Nord's contamination in Ukraine is now far greater than um, than what was originally in, in Donbass, and now you know, we're looking at a, a problem across Ukraine that is sort of on a scale that hasn't been seen in Europe since since the end of the Second World War. And so since, since then, um, you know, Halo has, we prepared for the, for the very worst case. Um, and by and large, the, the worst case happened, but we were prepared for it. Um, and we were able to, to move with, um, with the vast majority of our equipment. Um, and more importantly, um, you know, with the safety of our staff at the forefront of our minds, um, we were able to put a package, a relocation package for them to move with their families, um, initially to, um, uh, Venezia. Um, at the time, the Russians were still, still occupying um, many parts of northern Ukraine. So we had to find somewhere to, to set up, to be able to, to reestablish, to train. Um, so Venetia was the, the place to do that. Um, and since, uh, since April, when the Russians left northern Ukraine and ultimately lost the, lost the Battle of Kiev, um, we've been able to relocate and set up a base, uh, sort of main operations hub, if you like, out in Bravari, just east of Kiev. Um, and security situation, depending, you know, we've got to remember we are at the, the mercy of the ebb and flow of, of history you know, that's unfolding here in Ukraine. Um, we're planning to set up, um, an operational base in Chernihiv, looking at soon as well. And so we've managed to relocate with, um, a significant number of, of experienced Ukrainian staff, um, and look to expand to about 600 staff by the end of this year and doubling that towards the, the end of next year to sort of upscale our work um, to reflect the, the really urgent need that's, that's now on a scale, like I said, that is sort of almost unprecedented in Europe since the end of the Second World War. And what kind of mines are we encountering and where? In terms of the contamination, the types of, types of mines and, and ordnance that we're, that we're finding, just had some, to meet that. I'll, I'll, I think I'll tell a, uh, that I'll, I'll tell an anecdote. I think so. When the Russians left um, northern Ukraine, so we came out. I came out here in, in mid-April, and with a team came to into Ravari and met with the, the you know the, the military administration, and we were very well received. And the the need was immediately apparent for for that, for that relief for that for for our work here. Um, and we were invited by them to go and have a look around uh, around the sort of the villages outlying of, of Ravari and, and a bit further. Um, and what, what became very clear was the different types of contamination in, in different contexts. So you're looking at, um, quite a lot of, um, quite a lot of contamination of, of anti-tank mines in, um, in agricultural areas, in fields. 
that you know that are now in that are now in crop. And the majority of accidents that we're seeing um, with the information that's available to us, uh, people, well, the opaqueness information and, and try to gather it a ton of war. Um, the majority, about 60% of accidents are by anti-tank mines in, in fields with, with tractors and, and other vehicles. Um, and just driving around, around Bravari, you will see, um, fields with, at the time at least, you know, they're all gone now, but wrecks of, of vehicles, of tanks that have been destroyed by anti-tank mines or by other means. And, and, you know, mine signs along the roads, you know, even you know, still now are, are everywhere. So that's one of the main threats that, 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 that people are facing. Um, and there was one village in particular, I won't name the village or the, the names of the people I saw and spoke to, but there was one village where, uh, there was a family, um, we met an elderly man and, and, and his wife, um, who had stayed there for the duration of the, the Russian occupation. Um, and the Russians came and ransacked various, you know, the homes, um, destroyed a significant number of them and had, um, laid a number of booby traps. And so that's one of the main threats that, that a lot of people are facing returning to their homes. And I think in, in Halo, we see across the world, one of the, the greatest spikes in casualties, civilian casualties is when returnees come, come back to areas that are, you know, they, they believe to be safe, but actually, but actually aren't. They're contaminated by, by landlords, by landmines. And we see a, we see a spike in accidents. That's what's happening now. But this, this family, um, we spoke to, um, the Russians had occupied their home. They'd hidden in a cellar and the Russians had, um, you know, taken their dogs out and, and killed them. They destroyed their, their, their cars, um, their, their farming vehicles, their livelihood, ultimately. And as um, you know, they took us outside and took us, showed us where the Russians had, had occupied and, and dug in, you also saw um, positions, Russian positions, where um, again there were um, they they had seen Russians lay lay anti-personnel mines, tripwires, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so there was certainly that that degree of, of fear that not only were there um, were there booby traps in in their homes, but also um, in the surrounding fields and tank mines and in, in areas in, in particularly wooded areas where the Russians had dug in and, and made their positions. But there was um, there was contamination there as well. So aside from, aside from that, um, and that, that, that threat, those, those, those mixed threats, what we're seeing in places like, like Boutrin and in, in Brovari and also up north in, in Chernihiv as well, where I was at the end of May. Um, we're also talking about, um, new types of, of mines that have been, that are being found. You may have seen on social media. I mean, I mean, this, this war has turned into a you know, social media war and you know, TikTok is, um, TikTok is, is rife with this stuff. Um, but there, you know, there are mines that have now been, um, that have now been found. Around, uh, the POM three, for example, um, anti-personal mines, which which pose new challenges in how we might go about clearing them, and that they are not your typical you know, victim-operated mines where you step on a pressure plate and it blows up. These are mines that are are seismically initiated, where the mine the mine lands um, and it uh, inserts a you know, probe into the ground, where it's it's designed to detect the footprints of, of people and, and of animals. Um, and then you know, when somebody comes along. Um, a small charge blast the blast the, the main body of the charge of the mine into the air and, and it detonates and it's designed to defeat body armor so it's 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 quite it's quite sick the amount of thought that goes into goes into these things but it creates new challenges for for those of us who are trying to clear them and the, the traditional means of, of clearing landmines by and large with people the miners um you know it, it won't work so we need to find we need to think of, of new ways of doing that and that's what things were and tell me a little bit about how successful are uh, Ukraine and its forces at, you know, detecting and um, disarming mines? Yeah, I mean, I think in areas where there's been, where areas that have been contested, where the Russians have occupied and, you know, the Ukrainians have regained and, and to maintain control, I think what I've seen, I've, 
I think it's been pretty inspiring um, what Ukraine's you know, first responders, uh, state emergency service, for example, the national police have, have really been able to achieve. Um, and what I would say is that they are, um, I, I'll, I'll tell another anecdote, I guess, um, going to, to Bucha and Irpin in, in fairly, um, is fairly plain seen in rapid order since the Russians have left. Straight away, you had um, the Ukrainian authorities going out doing um, working to um, reactive call outs. So somebody goes to their home, dials 101, finds something, and um, you know, a responder comes out and, and deals with it, um, and, and it takes it away. But the, the efforts that have been made to um, you know, to get life sort of back to, back to normal as quickly as possible has been has been pretty pretty amazing to see. And not not just in places like Butcher, but you know, Chernihiv and, and Brovary as well. Um, what I would say is that um, because it's done on a, on a largely reactive basis, it's not entirely meticulous. Um, and so areas that we're finding, for example, in, in, in rural agricultural areas, um, there have been, and there's been some clearance done by, by SES, for example, um, and there might be, you know, might be a mine left behind. And so we have certainly found areas where um, there have been made efforts made to um, clear these areas. Um, you know, a, a tractor goes back out, plows its field, and, and, and there's another, another detonation. So this is where I think international mine action operators such as Halo can come in and, and support. And you look at, at, at fields like the one I've just described, and a, an area with, with, with a mine still in it. If it's not, if it's not 100% safe, it's not 100% safe. There's, you know, you can take out nine mines, but if there's one left behind, it's still by, by its nature, it's still a minefield. Um, so, that's what we're working to, to do at the moment. Um, and that's some areas where we're, we're clearing around Brovery. Um, we have had a number of uh, areas where there have been accidents and we're now able to go back out um, and, and clear those areas. Um, but I think the, the way that the, the Ukrainian government and, and SES and the police have responded to this has been, has been really inspiring and quite exceptional. And so what are some of the non-military impacts of uh, mining? Well, I, I think the... Aside from the um, the very real human impact um, of, of landmines in terms of the, the deaths caused, I think we've, you know, that, that's less plain to see. I think in Ukraine, it's I think it's, it, there's potential to forget that this is not a localized crisis. Um, you know, Russia's invasion it, it is taking on a, a much more global dynamic, both in scale and and in its impact. Um, and on a strategic level um, landmine contamination in Ukraine will have a significant impact on, on global food security. We're already seeing that in, in, in many parts of the world. Um, Ukraine is a major exporter of, of foodstuffs but because production is, is lower. Obviously, it's likely that more food products will, will stay in Ukraine, not be able to get exported and, and so on and so forth, and to say nothing of, of the Russian blockade of, of the Black Sea. Um, what we're seeing in, in the fields down the road here, um, just outside of Kiev, I mean, it, it is the epicenter of a, of a global crisis. And that's what, what we're here to, to help, help alleviate. Um, and it's something that I think is, you know, it's potentially generational, maybe even intergenerational, um, in, in dealing with it. But I think as, as a start for 10, getting in, clearing these areas, making sure that farmers can get back out to their, account their fields and, and harvest their crops and, and being able to do so safely is, is, is certainly a good place to start. Um, uh, you know, leisure pursuits, for example, uh, going for a walk in the woods, going hunting, fishing, foraging, um, you know, collecting firewood. You know, we're now in the, approaching the height of summer, but before long, it's going to be, going to be winter. There's going to be 
um, I dare say, um, there's going to be an increasing number of people who are going to go into forested areas to collect wood for fires. But it's forested areas, and particularly where, where Russians are occupied, that are, that are you know, incredibly dangerous. Um, so there's, there's that aspect there. So aside from you know, the non-military aspect of, of this, you know, it, like I said, it's not just a localized crisis. This is, it's, you know, this is going to be a, a global one. And to kind of conclude our interview, um, can you tell me a little bit about some of the long-term effects? You know, for example, comparing to the situation in Afghanistan with where we saw huge minefields that still kill many children today. That's that's a question I'm I'm asked quite often: is how long is it going to take? How long do you think it will take to clear? I wouldn't want to put a number on that. Um, there is still a, an ongoing war, um, but like I said earlier, what we what we knew of the contamination in Donbass prior to you know, the escalation on 24th February, that was going to take 20 years, and that was just the Donbass. We're looking at, you know, it's, it's, it's a generational, potentially intergenerational problem, like somewhere like, like Afghanistan, as you say. But I think what's, what's important is trying to understand that there is, there's now an opportunity here, um, as long as there is the political will and the funds to, to see this through. There's a time now, over the next five years or so, to really put a dent in this, especially in some, well, particularly in, in northern Ukraine. This is a problem that can be dealt with, um, can be dealt with now. And it's, you know, it's only going to get worse. You know, like I said, um, the ebb and flow of the war, um, notwithstanding. And I think it's something that, that all of our, that the many donor governments who are currently funding this mine clearance with Halo has seen our funding, you know, triple since, since yesterday's 24th of February. What we would say is that this is not a problem that's going to go away in the next year or two. It's, it's so important to keep this, the funding going and for, the donor governments and you know, to have that, that will to really see this through. And I think we're seeing a window in the next five years, next 10 years, where there could be a really good dent put in this. But the, the immediate impact that we're seeing is, as we've said, it's, it's not a local crisis, it's a global one and it needs to be addressed. Um, it needs to be addressed now. Well, thank you, Mike, so much for your time. This was very interesting and I definitely learned a lot. It was a pleasure talking to you. I want to encourage all of our listeners to support the Kiev Independent and subscribe to our Patreon. If you want to support independent journalism in Ukraine, which right now in the middle of war is more important than ever, you can become our patron at patreon.com slash Independent, or you can just Google Kiev Independent Patreon and the first few links should lead you right to it. And thank you guys for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.